Welcome to episode 70 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we have a very special guest with us, Derek Sivers, who, amongst other things, has been a circus ringleader, worked as a touring session musician, written and released an album, founded, built, and sold CD Baby for 22 million, and most recently is in the process of founding Muckwork and Now Now Now. Hi, Derek. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks, Justin. I know both Jason and me have a lot of questions for you. So, Jason, how about you get started? Well, uh, the, the first uh, post I ever read by Derek was about how he was trying out Rails. To, he was trying to convert CD Baby <laughs> from PHP into Rails. I remember that <laughs> Yeah, post. yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, Derek knew I was going to start with this one, I think. <laughs> yeah, so that was the first time I came across it because I was, at the time, I don't know, exploring Rails and PHP and other options, and I read his article with a lot of interest. And it that you know generated a lot of uh, you know flaming and people got really upset, especially in the Ruby community at the time. But I found it really interesting um, that somebody was actually going trying Rails, giving up on it, going back to PHP. And we can get into that later. But that was the very first thing I've read by Derek, and it was, I found it really interesting. And but since then, I, 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 I not long after that, I started to see a lot of a lot of his posts show up on Hacker News on a very regular basis, and they almost always. Um, would wind up on the front page. The point that I think anytime someone would see a post by a post from Sivers.org, it was voted up. Yeah. <laughs> and I termed it the Sivers effect. It was like, oh, Sivers, oh. boom, up. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, you kind of came out of nowhere over the past year in terms of having a name among the tech world. And I'm wondering whether building a name for yourself was a specific goal or was it a side effect of something else? Building a name wasn't the goal. Um, I did make this very conscious decision uh, about a year ago, like summer of 2009, that I was going to start sharing what I've learned. Uh, it was one of those moments where, I know it sounds kind of corny, but I was thinking about those deathbed kind of thoughts, you know, and I've learned so much in all these years. And sometimes I tell things to friends over converse, you know, dinner conversation. And I realized that there were all these things that I had learned the hard way that I'd never really written down. I thought, you know, I should just be sharing this stuff. But before that, um, the reason that that was a conscious decision is because for the few years before that, I was very consciously being as invisible as I could be. I think when I was at CD Baby, it was really too much pressure for me. Um, everybody's got their own, you know, little internal barometer of <laughs> how much pressure is the right amount for them. And for me, it's like, you know, having 85 employees that were almost all directly reporting to me was not, um, not the life I liked. And I have you know, 250,000 musician clients that all kind of knew my name as the CD Baby guy and 2.5 million customers that bought music from me. And, and I just felt a little too public, you know what I mean? Like, I, I was always scared to do any of that location-based stuff. I didn't ever want to let anybody know where I was because if I said something like, hey, I'm in London, then all of a sudden I'd get, you know, 100 emails from people that wanted me to come to their gigs. So I w was previously, I was being very, you know, consciously invisible. I never wanted anybody to know where I was. I didn't want to share my thoughts because I didn't want to have to defend them. And then, yeah, just like summer of 2009, I thought, all right, but you know what? I've got to just share all this stuff I've learned, even just for no, no career reason, no benefit to me. There are no ads on my side. I don't need, you know, uh, any other side benefits from this. I just feel like it's the right thing to do to 
share what I've learned. So that's the kind of, that's where I seem to kind of come out of nowhere all of a sudden was just decided to stop being secret. And Jason, I think it's also, you know, Derek's decided to share this stuff, but he comes from a position of a lot of success and a lot of experience. So really it's just because he's remarkable and interesting. That's the reason how, how the stuff that he's shared has, has gotten so high on Hacker News and other sites like that. Well, Justin, on that side, I mean, I could get wonderful. I am quite cynical about the the attention I get for the stuff I write because there is this funny aspect of like, if I was just a guy with an opinion that hadn't started CD Baby, nobody would listen to me. But the fact that it's like, oh, well, here's here's this little article about, you know, whatever, right. Rails, uh, written by a guy who sold his company. So all of a sudden it has more validity somehow, uh, which is just, you know, I just roll my eyes at a bit. I mean, it's it's, I don't take it personally at all. I think that's a lesson I learned years ago, um, back in like 2004 or so, um, 2003, I think. Uh, there was this journalist that launched a really harsh and very personal attack against me um, because he really wanted me to hire him as a consultant for my company, and I just kept refusing him. And finally, he just kind of straight up blackmailed me and said, look, either you hire me or I'm going to call you a scammer. Um, I said, all right, have at it, have fun. <laughs> and right. he launched this very kind of like personal attack on me and an ongoing series for years. He posted all these articles. And and um, it, I think part of not taking online criticism too personally, like it, I don't know if you guys have had this where if you read enough negative comments about something you're doing, at a certain point, you just got to disconnect and realize like, you know what, they don't know me. Oh, we, we definitely have. And it's, it's something that we've discussed on our discussion shows a number of times. But it's kind of fun, isn't it? Where it's like you, you just realize, like, you know what? They don't know me. It's so, but then if you're going to disconnect from it, you also have to disconnect from the, the praise, too. If somebody's saying really nice things about you online, you also still have to say, well, they don't know me. So You just have to have a thick skin. And it, it, it essentially goes yeah. with the territory of being a, a public figure, a, a web famous figure. <laughs> not not that we're web famous. If you, <laughs> sure you are. You're texting. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, the one thing that I think might help a little bit for us now is we're so small that the people who do listen to us feel a little more connected to us. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think it probably also helps that people hear our voices as opposed to just read our words. And that, I think, allows people to connect with us a little more as human beings as opposed to just some guy with an opinion. Because you know how easy it is to read a, a piece, some blog post, and just get really irritated by it. Yep. <laughs> and if you actually heard a, a person who you kind of had gotten to know a little bit, and you, if you disagreed with them, you're like, I, I don't know if I agree with that, whatever. Um, I think that factors in anyway. Yeah, definitely. So, um, Okay. I'd be, I'd be curious, you know, when you made that jump from the music world, so you obviously were well-known in the music world, or at least independent music world, right? Among, like, yeah. as you said, uh, musicians and and uh, and even and the people buying the music. But when you, you made the move to sort of to the tech world and, and writing, um, you, you have a, I was wondering how much the, your email list played into it, because you mentioned we, we sent a couple emails back and forth, and you said that, you know, you, you created the email list first. And I was just curious how that why you thought of doing that as opposed to just doing the standard blog thing um it was an afterthought i had been posting some articles on my site for a while and you know i'd I'd post something and it would have 12 comments or something but then i would get these emails from musicians uh for example saying 
hey man, what's going on? What's what's new with you? What do you have you started your new company yet? Fill me in. I haven't heard a thing from you. And I realized that you know, for my ten years at CD Baby, I would. Uh, send all of my clients an email every month or two just with any new opportunities I had found or something I thought might help them. Um, Not articles, usually more like very specific things like, hey, there's this movie that's looking for music or we just worked out a special deal with this company so all CD Baby members get a free sign up instead of the usual 50 bucks. So I'd be emailing my musicians with things like that. Uh, constantly for 10 years. But then when I sold CD Baby, all of a sudden, from their point of view, I went silent. So I started getting these emails from people saying, hey, man, I haven't heard from you. What's going on? I said, well, if you look at my site, I've been posting things there. But you realize, like, you know, people have better things to do than check my URL to see what's new. And not a lot of people are into RSS or Twitter or anything like that. So there's a huge number of people that really assume that you have nothing going on unless you email them and tell them you have something going on. So uh, I just bit the bullet one day and I said, okay, this feels a little weird, but here I go. And I sent an email to everybody in my database saying, um, hey, if you want to hear what's going on with me and like have me email you when something's added to my site, click here. Um, if you want to he- only hear from me every few months, click here. Or if you never want to hear from me again, click here. And I just set up a little thing on my site with those three options, you know, everything, something, or nothing uh, were the three options. And yeah, about, I forget what it is, something like 25,000 people clicked saying they wanted to know everything I post and 50,000 said they wanted to hear every now and then. And uh, luckily only about 4,000 said nothing. (laughs) Wow. So uh, the rest didn't click. Um, How long ago, how long after you started posting on Sivers.org? Did you start the uh, email list itself? I guess almost in the big picture, almost right away. I think it was only a, a couple months that I was posting stuff on my site, but without emailing anyone to let them know. So it was just a few months later I realized that. So, and part of it is, you know, every community has its own culture. So to give a little context, I mean, CD Baby, because it was an online CD store, I mean, later later we had a digital distribution, but I mean, I started the site at the end of 1997. You know, MP3s hardly existed yet, um, except in a Fraunhofer lab somewhere. And um, so I always kind of had the the kind of tech laggard crowd. Do you know what I mean? Like, these are people whose main career focus was selling and shipping plastic discs. Uh, while other musicians, as soon as MP3s came out, kind of proudly declared that they would never, ever make a CD again, and they used sites like MP3.com, uh, CD Baby appealed more to the people that were, um, you know, folk musicians, gospel musicians, just, well, any kind of musician that were still making a living selling physical CDs. So they've often kind of, by definition, been slightly older, slightly more kind of uh, not glued to their computers. So I think maybe email was a good choice for my... Uh, community, but might not work for others. Did did you start Sivers.org uh, right after you sold CDB? Because I, I think looking at the chronology that you've described on your website in, in a couple different places, I think you sold CDB around 2008. Yeah. And was it not long after that that you started posting regularly on Sivers.org? <laughs> it was a little before, actually. There's this okay. a very awkward lag time where uh, it was January 2008 when I had a an agreed upon uh, price with the the company that bought CD Baby, and 
is pretty much a done deal. But then they said, you know, we'd need a few months of the bankers and the paperwork to do their thing because they needed to raise funding to buy CD Baby. So there was this eight months uh, between January and August uh, when the sale was basically done, but I just had to keep my mouth shut and wait for the official announcement, which didn't happen until August. So uh, it was during that time that I realized that I was going to have to step up and be a little more personally public uh, unless I just wanted all my ex-clients to forget who I was. So uh, I started the site slowly during that eight months. Hey, Derek, um, you talk about um, the pressure of having the 85 employees and the selling to selling millions of um, music to independent people who are interested in buying music. And then you've sold CD Baby and moved away from that. I'm wondering if, although that wasn't what you wanted, that wasn't necessarily the life you wanted, was it a little bit like moving away from crack cocaine? Was there some kind of withdrawal symptoms from moving out of that scenario to being your, you know, I guess being your own, bringing your own life back? No, no. Not a, I think, again, it's just that little barometer metaphor I used. Everybody has their own uh, kind of place where they're happy, you know. So I'm amazed at people like, you know, the moguls of the world that make millions and then billions and then they keep going. I I can't imagine that. Um, to me, I'm really at my happiest sitting alone, reading, writing, programming, learning. Uh, I, I got married about six months ago and, and after getting married, my wife said, you know, I think you're a lot less social than even you realize. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really just kind of happiest in solitude. And, um, which is funny because, you know, I think about that for future things because intellectually there's still lots of business, uh, ideas that I want to put into practice and try, uh, in a business this, that I want to start. But I know this about myself that I really prefer to sit and work alone. Um, so it's going to be interesting to kind of try to find that balance and do this kind of online-only company that maybe has no employees or definitely has no office. Um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to kind of set up my new companies knowing what I know about myself now because that's why I was going to pretty fiercely unhappy my last few years at CD Babies because of all the, the, the pressure of having you know, 85 people's lives who I was responsible for. I didn't like that. So nope. happy to let go of that crack pipe. <laughs> now you 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 write about the CD Baby about your um, well running CD Baby. I think around two thousand two, you kind of uh, decided to start working remotely <laughs> from yep. the company, and it was like six years. I think it was in two thousand two two thousand eight. You were sort of just traveling around with your laptop, um, and we're, we weren't really on site. But yet, yeah, I guess the company grew considerably during that time, and as you said you know, got up to about 85 employees. I mean, what was it like to run a company and just sort of not be on site most of the time? It takes a, um, I mean, I'm still fully responsible. So even though I wasn't there, it's, you know, my phone would ring every now and then. And I was still kind of the guy who was still finally responsible for every, everything working well and everybody getting paid and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just that I was kind of remote like, uh, Charlie's angels. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, there's a beautiful phrase, you know, there's that awful book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, who's just a terrible writer. It's a terrible book that's almost seemed like it was, you know, generated by some kind of random monkey algorithm, but it's almost a content-free book. But it had a one brilliant bit in it that I just loved where he said, uh, he was talking about the difference between being an employee, being self-employed, and being a business owner. And he said... A lot of people go from being an 
an employee to saying, hey, I want freedom. I don't want to have to report to the man. So they become self-employed. They think they're a business owner, but they're not. They're self-employed, which means uh, they still have a job, uh, but now they are their own boss. But that means that their boss is always with them, you know. Um, but he said, now, a business owner, the definition of a business owner is when you could leave your company for a year and come back and it's doing better than when you left. That's when you're a true business owner. And that's true freedom because until then, if you stop working, you stop getting paid. A business owner is somebody who's really just kind of an invested in the business but not required to run it. And I remember it was around you know 2001 when I read that. And I went, ooh, yeah, that's what I need. <laughs> so I really just kind of made a very, you know, started putting decisions into practice that uh, to make sure I was never necessary to the day-to-day running of the company. And, and honestly, that lasted for about four years. There was a time around the end of 2000, mid-2006, where I got very sucked back in. Um, a couple key crucial people of the company um, messed up pretty bad, and the operations of the company were getting really corrupted. And uh, I went back to Portland, and actually then for the, the next year and a half, really lived at the office, literally. Um, my apartment was under construction at the time, so I lived on the couch in the warehouse. So that, that remote thing worked for about four years, and then it was about a year of me living at the office, sleeping on the couch, and then... That's when I disappeared in 2007 and got ready to sell it. Derek, one, one of the things that I've uh, seen happen with a lot of companies is that what happens at the top is what happens lower down, like it's the, the microcosm is the macrocosm. So um, you, you'll have a CEO in place, and that CEO is maybe, uh, I don't know, stingy and, and difficult. And then the rest of the company kind of mirrors that. And what I find strange about your story is, is that you're essentially remote, but you still managed to impart something to the rest of the company and make it all work. How, how did that happen? Yeah, okay. That's, you're the first person to ever notice that. Um, it's because there were these key years between 1998, when I hired my first employee, and 2002. I was very deeply hands-on. And those people that I hired in those four years really totally got it. Like those guys you know, really had the DNA of the whole company memorized um you know first there was this guy john that was the first guy i hired and it was just me and him for a whole year and then we hired ben and then john and ben knew everything about the company and then daniel and then karina and then you know so it's like the first four or five even first 10 people really understood every aspect of the company and totally got it and from that point on they did all the hiring like i never did hiring after that all the employees just did the hiring themselves. So if we needed more help in the warehouse, we told one of the guys in the warehouse to, or told him, you know, if you have any friends, tell them we're hiring. And everybody always has somebody looking for a job. So then they would bring in their friends and they would really kind of communicate the company culture down. So yeah, there were absolutely some kind of very core philosophies of the company that were uniquely my approach. (laughs) But I said, no, everybody, this is our, um, this is our company culture. For example, um, anytime there is a you have the chance to do something formal or informal, then informal is always the answer. <laughs> um, you always just do whatever the like. For example, like choosing um, the decision making process for what to do with any kind of customer problem is just always do what's best for the company. I mean, sorry, do what's best for the customer. <laughs> Don't worry about the company. We're doing fine. So, like, for example, if somebody needs an absolute full refund 
and they even said they didn't get the first full refund just to refund them again. Like, don't worry about it. We're doing fine. Always choose the friendly thing. Um, always sit and talk on the phone with anybody that seems to need to talk. Things like that, you know. So it's like I kind of taught John that in my first year. John taught Ben that. Ben taught the other people that. And it just passes itself down so that by 2002, they really – they got it. So – Everybody that was working there totally had the company culture. They didn't need me anymore. But, yeah, Justin, you really you nailed it. Part of the problem was by 2006, those kind of old-timers in the company, their voice had gotten a little dissolved. Or, you know, you call it that game of telephone, right, where a message gets a little distorted with each retelling. Yeah, the Chinese whispers, yeah. Oh, what do you call it? Chinese whispers. I hadn't heard it called that. I like that. Chinese whispers. By 2007 the company culture had gotten really corrupt so that I found people doing uh, horrible things and even hiring new employees, teaching them these horrible things and telling them this is the way we do things. I was like, oh my God, no, 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 no. And it had gotten so corrupt that, um, I don't know, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that. That's almost like, you know, your your kids, you see your kids doing something that you don't approve of. You're like, whoa, 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 how did that happen? We got to rectify this right now. Um, you know, so my question is, what kind of people were you looking to hire? It sounds like you hired some really um, high-quality um, people <laughs> in your first group, but then that was diluted. I mean, were you looking for a certain type of person beyond, say, a specific skill set that they needed to do the job? No, dude, it wasn't even a skill set. I mean, <laughs> think of how informal this is. It's a record store. You know, if you've ever seen, you saw the movie High Fidelity, right? That's what I was yeah, thinking. There's people like like uh, Jack Black in, in High Fidelity, Black, right? And that little meek guy, I swear to you, like, probably two of my first employees were pretty much like those two guys. And that was really the company culture inside the shop is, is uh, I was that guy, what's his name, Rob Gordon or something. And, and then uh, the... The Jack Black guy, and, and especially that meek uh, other guy. It's that's really kind of what the company was like. So honestly, hiring was no more than, hey, do you know anybody that's available? We'll tell them to start work tomorrow, and that was it. I wouldn't even interview people. It was just whoever was around. But did it turn out that? I mean, it sounded like they turned out to be pretty good uh, employees. I mean, was it they just turned out to be good people, and they were able to learn uh, along the way, or how did how did that how did that yeah, shake like, out? I think this, you know, starting a, having the right culture really sets the tone for everything. So, for example, there's this amazing woman, Stacy, who was working for, I don't know, 100 grand a year at Intel and quit her job to come work for 30,000 a year for me just because she just loved the company culture that much. She wanted to make this life change where it wasn't about the money, where it was about being happy and working with people you like and having that freedom so that if you need to say like, you know, Hey, my friend is sick. I won't be in next week. It's like, no problem. Take care of your friend. You know, just like, I think once you set that tone, then you kind of bring out the best in people. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when people are around other people who are doing the right thing with, for the right reasons, it brings out the best in them as well. And then when they communicate that to new people to come in, somebody would really have to be a pretty corrupt motherfucker to like not fall into that and so we had some bad eggs in there and we fired them and luckily Oregon uh, is one of those states I think with the the law is called something like at will employment at will yeah at will so it's really easy to fire people uh, 
so that if somebody wasn't working out, it was just instant kind of like, no, 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 get out. <laughs> you don't fit here. The one thing is, is it's, it's very much about the business that you're in. I mean, because let's say you were starting a company and which you, which I'm sure you wouldn't, but let's say you were starting a company like mint.com or, or, right. you know, or Indianero, like a company that was dealing with processing financial payments or something like that you wouldn't be able to create that same kind of culture right you're right yeah i mean it was a record store <laughs> <laughs> you know i just switched uh, directions a little bit and I, one thing i want to ask um Derek about was how he balances music and entrepreneurship because obviously music has been a, a primary pursuit of his life and he seems to be really focused on entrepreneurship at the same time and i'm just wondering how he, how you know Derek, how you balance those two um, pursuits because they can be all-consuming for people. It seems like it would be hard to switch from one to the other. I'm a musician. No, wait, I'm building a business. No, wait, I'm a musician. I mean, what? How do you? How do you do that? Um, I don't. Um, in I'd say from the age of fourteen until twenty-nine, really every waking thought was music. So every time I had a, an idea, it was a musical idea. Every time I wanted to do an experiment, it was a musical experiment. I mean, we all have active brains that want to do things, and we all have our various outlets. You know, so for some people it's photography, for some people it's programming, whatever. So really from the age of 14 to 29, mine was just music. That was my sole outlet for all of my thoughts. But then at 29, when I started CD Baby which was just an accident. I mean, I was just creating a little website to sell my CD. But then some of my friends asked if they could use the thing I had built for me. And so I said, sure, yeah, I guess. It was, it, I didn't mean to start a company. You know what I mean? So once I realized I had accidentally started a company, once you know the 20th person was calling me to ask me to sell their CD, I thought, oh my God, this is ridiculous. I think I've accidentally started something here. Um, I swear, something in my head clicked. And I think it was just... Because I had hit a really frustrating point in my own musical career, I had, you know, accidentally uh, slept with my singer, and that was unwise, and <laughs> the band was kind of breaking up, and uh, it was worth it, though. Um, and uh, I was just getting, I had been on the road touring for like 12 years straight, and I was just ready for a change, and so all of a sudden, realizing I had started CD Baby, I just threw myself into it entirely. And because I couldn't afford to hire a programmer, I sat down to learn programming myself. You know, I bought a $20 book on PHP and MySQL and just just figured it out. And it was fascinating. I just loved it. And I just loved this kind of change of pace. And I loved not constantly being in the van and lugging my amps onto a stage and just loved sitting there and thinking and, and creating. It seemed almost more purely creative than what I had been doing in my years of touring. Mm -hmm. So really just something in my head switched and um I, that became my new creative outlet and and is still it um uh, all of my ideas now are often kind of tech entrepreneurial ideas and i don't really think in uh, it, it feels like i've sat down to try to write a song a few times but then i realized you know what like this just isn't my unique contribution to the world anymore they're Something, something that's that happened to me because I, I, I don't know whether you know, but I used to be a musician, and um, well, I, I guess I am a musician, but I really, really was like you. I really wanted to try and be a successful, famous musician, mm -hmm. and um, I've had that similar experience of thinking about music and songwriting and how to do that. And well, Justin, you toured for what ten years or something uh, like that? We, your... we we basically put five years of kind of hardcore trying to get it, trying to make it work with my Irish band, oh, wow. Money Penny. Um, oh, and okay. what one thing that I kind of noticed was that 
I'd, I'd always done programming as a sideline just because I had naturally done it. And one thing that I noticed was how much easier it was to program and code and think of business and do all the business aspects of the band than it was to write songs and sing. And it just oh, kind yeah. of made me think, you know what, it's, it, what's easy for me to do is what I should follow. You know, that's kind of the thing that I got to. And I wondered whether something like that had happened to you. Did you find it was easier to do CD Baby and, and code than it was to do the music stuff? <sighs> Huh. No, honestly, um, I can totally relate to what you're saying, except for that one word, easy versus difficult. I think I'm always looking for what's difficult. Oh, that's interesting. And doing music had become too easy. It's like I was kind of in this routine where I was gigging, you know, whatever, 300 days a year, where it's just every single day, it was just get in the van, off to the next gig, lug my stuff on stage, get up there like the little dancing monkey and do my thing and get back in the van and do it again and maybe write and record a new song in between all that mess. And and it had just become kind of this brainless routine. In fact, okay, talking music for a minute, I always admired the record producer. Think about Brian Eno and U2 as just an example. Oh, so fantastic example. You, U2 goes into the studio with Brian Eno and it's this whirlwind of creativity and they just, you know, they do some, especially if you think of like Achung Baby or something like that, we're really innovative and a lot of that's thanks to Brian Eno and just his wonderful conceptual ideas and experimental approach to everything and then when the record's done, U2 kind of has to go get in the monkey suit and tour the world for two years just mm-hmm. getting on stage doing the same thing every night. Brian Eno gets to just dive right into the next album with James or whoever his next client is and gets to stay in that purely creative mode. So I think I always felt like that was that's a career I would probably still be doing if uh, CD Baby hadn't started. I think I really just like to stay in that full creative flow. And I was never really that kind of hedonist party type that enjoyed just uh, touring the world and getting on stage. Uh, so to me, as soon as I started diving into CD Baby, it was like, oh, finally, like this this half of my brain that had been asleep for many years, this, this real tough problem solving, trying to figure out how to make my Linux server doing the such and such <laughs> with a, get this coding. Like, I loved it. It was so nice to wake up that side of my brain again. So I think I'm always looking for the bigger challenge. I see. Well, one thing that's interesting uh, about that comparison, so between, say, writing code and building a business around the code versus creating music and then building a career as a musician, is that if you're writing code, sometimes a lot of the business stuff means that you just kind of start sending out some emails or making some phone calls. You're still sitting there at your desk. I mean, as <laughs> much as we complain about how hard it is to switch from writing code to doing the business stuff, I mean, it's infinitely easier than like, you know, I, I imagine, okay, now we go on tour, right? I mean, you know, like you said, I mean, doing creative stuff while you're on tour is probably very difficult. I mean, I, I, I'm, I mean, imagine, I'm sure you wrote some songs and stuff while you're on the road, but I imagine it's just, it's hard to balance those things. Or it's much harder yeah. to balance those things. You just made a beautiful comparison, Jason, with uh, the the business aspect of things, sitting at the desk and making phone calls is really to me like the parallel to everything I just said about having to go on tour. Monkey it's, state. Yes. The the sitting thing, at yeah. the desk and making the stupid phone calls yeah. and all that, like doing that, the business network and going off to conferences and getting business cards and saying, Oh, nice to meet you. Maybe we could talk about some kind of deal we could do to their survey, yeah. blah, blah, blah. That feels like the boring, uncreative, unchallenging going on tour side, which is why I, I rejected it. And, uh, at CD Baby, you know, even though we had 85 employees, I was the sole programmer. I just insisted on doing all that myself. And when, when people would ask why I don't outsource it, I'd say, or, you know, just hire somebody to do it. I'd say that would be like 
the songwriter of a band hiring somebody else to do the songwriting. Like, that's the creative part, the, the, the creation, the program. Yeah, why do they get to have all the fun? Right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I want to have the fun. <laughs> the programming <laughs> is the creation. I almost feel like sometimes I'd walk into this giant warehouse with 85 people and, you know, this massive warehouse we had at CD Baby, and I would look at all this and think, wow, all this stuff exists because of a program I wrote. That's so cool. Like, <laughs> I want to focus on the program then. It just everything else is supporting that, not vice versa. Yeah, there's just so much leverage in uh, code. I mean, you can, you know, like you said, I mean, you can create, you write some lines of code. You're literally sitting there at a computer just typing some keys, thinking of some interesting thoughts. You create something, and then it just, all this stuff springs forth from that. And there's an incredible amount of power in that. And actually. you're creating something out of nothing in, in a way that's not possible in any other way of life, I guess, except for maybe writing. But even, yeah. even music doesn't offer the same level of creating something out of nothing. Yeah. Although, I mean, Justin, look at that idea of the, you know, the, the songwriting. Like, sometimes you could look at the entire music industry and think, all right, all of this would be nothing without those hit songs. Like, oh, this is absolutely. all built on that song. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, speaking of creating something and another thing, this would be kind of a fun question to ask. So, uh, you know, I've I've talked about, hey, I need to start a blog or something because <laughs> I don't have anything up. And Jess and I joke about that about this because um, I, I I say that I don't want to use WordPress and I'm just going to make it straight <laughs> HTML or whatever because I don't want all that stuff. I just want something really simple. And I used Sivers.org as an example. I said, look, you know, you know, Derek Sivers has a very widely read blog. He writes a lot of great stuff. He's clearly not using WordPress or any major block engine. It's not hurting him. He doesn't have tag clouds and all this crazy <laughs> BS. I which bet I you any quits. money, he's not, it's not built out of pure HTML the same way that you want to build your well, Okay, look, let me, let me show you. Before let Derek answer, okay? Before <laughs> <laughs> Derek answers the question. I'm not saying that it has to be pure HTML. I mean, it could be one or two small PHP scripts, but it could be something very minimalist that you don't have to be this big hulking, honking, uh, blog engine just to post, uh, you know, uh, some articles on the web. And so, Derek, with that <laughs> set up, be curious. How, what was your what's your what's your infrastructure? What's your engine for running servers.org? Okay, well, believe it or not, um, I was using WordPress at first, and in fact, it looked exactly the same way it looks now. Um, I think for years I'd always done that. Like even you know that kind of. What are those BB forums called? Remember that, like that. BB, oh yeah, right. BB forum. It's like the PHP forums or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, even like when with host baby, my web hosting company, when we uh, decided we needed forum software, I just went for the kind of the BB forum stuff that everybody used. But the first thing I do is I just go in and I strip out almost everything, all those stupid little buttons and smileys and blah, and, and follow this and number of posts, and I just strip it all out. I'm like, come on. It's just, just Jason. It sounds like you've got this similar thing where it's just that that minimalist approach where you don't want the crap that's not necessary. So I did the same thing when I started using uh, when I set up servers.org. I set it up as WordPress, and I just went through and I just stripped out everything. Um, Is it still WordPress now? It was up until about a year ago, um, and it looked exactly the same. I changed nothing about the visual side, but. I wanted to go multilingual. Um, I had a translation thing set up where I was hiring translators to translate my articles. And I wanted the blog to have multilingual, but I kind of had my way I wanted it to be, where, you know, for example, there are three different ways you could change the language on the site. If, you're, if your browser is set to, by default, if your primary language in your browser settings is Chinese, then it would just show you the Chinese version first. 
uh, or let's say it would, if you're, you had a cookie where you had already set a cookie, whether you know, through a little form on my site saying what language you wanted, it would show you that language. Or you could still even add something to the um, end of the URL. You could just say, you know, question mark language equals uh, en or fr, and it would be in French. Uh, and then uh, last situation, it would default to English. So that's the way I wanted to do it. And I looked into WordPress's multilingual options, and it just looked like a bloated mess. And some people had created some kind of plugins, but I didn't really like their solution. And I knew it, it could be so simple. Just, just in my database of posts, all I'd have to do is just add one little field that said language, just a little two-character field with a two-character language code, and that's it. So if somebody pulls up sivers.org slash real, R-E-A-L, for example, it would, you know, the database query would say select from posts where URI equals equal uh, equals real and lang equals E-N or lang equals D-E, and it should just pull it up, and that's all I wanted it to do. It seemed so simple, but I couldn't find anybody else who had done that. So here I was looking at, you know, spending a week into kind of forcing WordPress to do things the way I wanted it. And I just looked at those kind of 25 different database tables inside WordPress and just said, you know, I don't need any of these. I just need two. I need posts and comments. That's it. What is all this crap? <laughs> so I just realized, yeah, it would be much easier to just open a text file from start and uh, create a posts.php, comments.php, just kind of set it up in, in almost Rails style, you know, with just uh, but set up simple MVC and just redid it from scratch and that was it. Derek, the thing is, is that um, this has been an ongoing argument between myself and Jason for quite a few episodes and the interesting <laughs> thing is, is that... You're, you lose, you're, by the way, no, no, Justin. No, no, you, you completely <laughs> lose based on Derek's original answer, which is the fact, the simple fact that, because Jason thinks that ultimately to get a blog, a blog thing up and running, it will be faster to create the entire thing out of HTML than it would be to install WordPress and make a post. And that's been his argument the whole way along. He doesn't want to learn WordPress. He's not interested in installing <laughs> know, it. I mean, He's not I, interested I, I, in all I that stuff. I don't want to learn that, all that crap. Listen, okay, for <laughs> starters... Derek started with WordPress, and I, I can bet you it was extremely fine. easy to start with WordPress, easier than creating a completely, you know, no, just okay, HTML Okay, file. okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know there are some people who, some listeners have heard this argument and they're like, oh God, we got to listen to this again. But I'll just say this, you know, I built a blog engine, a complete, fully functioning, sophisticated blog engine that had tags and comments and posts and drafts and all this stuff in PHP. So I know exactly what it, I, I know exactly what it takes. And so I'm like, okay, actually, I don't even need a lot of that stuff because I don't even care about it anymore. So I could even just strip out a couple, just a very minimal amount of functionality to do that. But then reality is, right, I mean, what do you need for a blog? I mean, it doesn't even have to be a blog, you know, have a lot of the functionality people consider a blog. Because if I'm doing something very simple, which is sort of what Derek is doing, which I like, which is just you have some posts that might have some comments. I don't need, you know, things ordered by dates, really. I don't need any of that stuff. Then the only thing you, the only component other than sort of an include header, include footer thing for like a, a basic PHP file is the comments, which of course you can use like discuss or yep. I don't know back type one of these other things. In which case you include a uh, JavaScript line of JavaScript and you're done. Yeah. So Derek, why did you start with WordPress rather than rolling your own? Um, actually, for the reason Justin you just said is just like I just wanted to get it up, like. I just wanted to slap something up quickly. I, I think I set up Sivers.org while I was still at CD Baby, and I just wanted to get something up there where I could just click post. And also, honestly, it was because I kept hearing about people using and loving WordPress, so I wanted to check it out. Um, and it was fine, you know? I mean, I, I used it for 
whatever nine ten months it was okay how long did it take to how long did it take to reskin it to look like you wanted it where it was just real simple and you got rid of everything oh skinning it i think i it only took me uh, an afternoon of browsing around a bunch of WordPress themes until I found one that was called something like Milk Minimalist or Milky White or something like that. I just found a theme that was like, ah, there we go. It has nothing on it. I like that. Right. <laughs> and so I used that theme, and then I went and hacked into that and just uh, made it the way I wanted it. But it, it was still a kind of hybrid. I had some static pages, and then I was even still inside WordPress doing some of my own hand-coded uh, PHP things. Like when I... For my mailing list, for example, I wanted people to be able to, you know, click for my email list and sign up to one of three different variations. So even that, I was having to do some awkward things like name my cookies I was setting to be the exact same name as WordPress was setting it. So if somebody told me their name and email address when signing up for my email list, that it would still remember that with a cookie when they went to leave a comment on one of my posts and vice versa. So I was having to do some little kind of like hacky things to work with WordPress, but but it was all right. It wasn't that bad. It, it was really the the multilingual thing is is the only place where it's, I just said okay, it it can't work with me anymore. Um, what do you use for uh, comments? Because I, I imagine you have to deal with the comment spam, and that can be a real pain. No, dude, a, a kismet is it called a kismet? I think um, a, a kismet, right? The WordPress. Oh, WordPress. it is amazing. So guys, I use I just. My own little hand-coded thing. There's just a single database table called comments, and when you, when you anybody types a comment, it just quickly kind of does a little web service thing over to a kismet, um, and if it comes back saying it's marked as spam, I just send them to kind of a sorry page saying sorry for some reason your comment was marked as spam. If you think this is wrong, please click contact at the top of the page and and just email me directly, and I'll try to take care of it. Otherwise. Um, Sorry. And as long as it does not come back as spam from Akismet, I just post it directly into my comments table and that's that. And right. um, simple as that. Right. And you also talk about your email list. Now, and I, you wrote a blog or an article, I guess, about how you send your emails. And you just set up a simple PHP script that basically read like a CSV file or something or yeah. an Excel. Because you, 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 you kept all your addresses in an Excel, well, Excel spreadsheet. Sorry, wait, hold on. Just to quickly interrupt, I. I made it that version just for the sake of giving it kind of like for dummies post, but I, I just use a Postgres database for everything. And so I actually keep everything in a Postgres database. I just thought for the sake of explaining it to others, I've had so many people emailing me asking if they should be spending, you know, $50 a month on constant contact or something. I said, and I kept telling people, no, it's actually really easy. It's like, just put your email addresses in Excel and then just, you can access it like this with this 10 line script that's all there is to it you know so. right right so here so here's my question about that because i've done that in the past and you know just uh, you know using php's mail function and that works in most cases but now i've i you, you do run in cases where people it gets picked up by people's spam filters and i read an article i don't know a few months back by jeff atwood where there's like four or five steps you need to take on your server so that it really increases the probability that your uh, auto sent emails aren't marked as spam. And um, for anyone who's interested, just just look up. So you want to send some email? I think it's is that like the sender policy framework stuff and that kind of thing. I don't remember. There's like a lot of different things. You just go in, you configure. You have like you have a certificate. You got to change a certificate, and you got to you know do some dumb little things. It just it just kind of in, I think it's it helps the 
the other email servers understand that this is actually the, the correct domain. There's no spoofing going on or something like that. Um, so anyway, otherwise, if you don't do that stuff, there's a good chance that, you know, a third or a quarter or some percentage of your emails are just going to go directly to people's spam filters, in which case you got a lot of customer support dealing and sorting that out for people because they're like, well, hey, I signed up for an account and I never heard from you. So yeah. my question is, do, do you use a straight or have you looked in the other services like SendGrid or MailChimp or, or whatever? I looked into those others, but you know, when I really, when I'm doing a lot of writing on my blog and, and like I said, it's like 25,000 people that want to get notified every time I write something and another 50,000 that want to get notified occasionally. Every time I started looking into those you know, services that will send your email for you, it was going to cost me hundreds of dollars. I was just like, ah, oh, screw it. You know, so I remember that. Um, in fact, just while you were talking, I pulled it up uh, his article is called So You'd Like to Send Some Email from right. April 21st. And just on a quick scan through here, yeah, like, for example, the reverse PTR record. Here's a fun little uh, geeky thing. Uh, because I really wanted outgoing email to be sent at, as Derek at Sivers.org um, and come back to that and, you know, all send to and reply to. Like, I didn't want it to have an email actually be sent from www at server one dot something you know i really wanted through and through if you look at the mail headers that it's absolutely derek org. so i actually run my um my apache i hacked the uh, apache config file so it's running as user derek in its own little jailed instance uh just so that every time i'm doing something through my site where the site sends out an email it actually is through and through coming from derek at org on a server that is just sivers.org. So things like that, I think, help uh, mm, nice. keep down spam. But I'm, I'm pretty serious about that stuff, too. Like, I, I want to make sure that I get every bounce back and, and click every link that comes back from those people using spam arrest or whatever I... Did, did, you go, did you have to go through a lot of steps, or was it pretty straightforward, I mean, to, to make sure that there weren't a lot of bounce backs? Um, there are still a lot of bounce backs, Uh Every now, like for example, um, yeah, I still constantly get every time I email something, there will be twenty or thirty people that either want me to keep typing words into spam arrest or um, those kind of things, or just people who have changed their addresses. And sometimes, if it's really worth it, I'll pull up, see if I've got a URL on file for them, click through to their site, find the contact me link, and contact them at their new email address. Um, hmm. Sometimes I do that kind of stuff. Um, Whoa. How many emails are, you, are how many addresses are on your list now? Oh wow, um, twenty or thirty is a lot if you have like three hundred, but if you have like fifty thousand, hundred thousand, sounds like he has a couple hundred thousand. Yeah, it's it's a lot, and it's I think it's I mean I think I have two hundred thousand people now in my database that have asked me to keep in touch. So, um, yeah, point one percent. So about a point one percent. Bounce rate. Yeah, it depends. Because those are people that have recently and actively come into my site and said, yes, keep me in the loop. Um, so it's different than, you know, if, for example, when I first time when I emailed my ex CD baby customers that I hadn't spoken to in two years, then, you know, a good, like, felt like practically half of them were old dead addresses. So, yeah, yeah. it depends. So I, well, I think I would just say one thing on this uh, to finish this up is I, I like. I like the way Derek thinks because I guess it's similar to me, which is that he's just trying to have fun and wants to understand how things work and just like to keep things simple, right? And, I, and that's why I like. If it's not fun, I don't want to do it. I don't care if it's theoretically easier. I don't know if other people like it easier. If I don't want to do it, it's, it's going to be painful for me. I, I'm just not going to do it, right? So, you know. 
Well, Jason, it sounds like you've got that same mindset where it's like, I would almost rather rewrite a blog from scratch just for the fun of doing it instead of, you know, just having one that works. It's, I guess that's why you guys, you know, are going back and forth on this is it's, it's two different approaches to things. So there are some things that we just want to have somebody take care of it. And there are things that we want to dive into. What's funny is just knowing where you draw the line. So I'm selling my house right now, uh, and it's it's back in California, and I'm not. And uh, I just asked a friend to just take care of it. I'm like, you know what? Just please just sell my house and tell me when it's done. And yeah. you know, other people like that would be something that they would focus on. Like they would get deeply involved in the selling of their house. That's something I don't care about because I'm busy, you know, hacking up some code that other people would rather hire somebody to do. But that's what I enjoy doing. So. Exactly. You pick what you want to do. Like, and just for an example, like we just put in, we we have a, we use WordPress for our tech zing. Um, uh, site and we had the ugliest theme imaginable. It was almost like we purposely went out and found the ugliest theme to prove some kind of point, although I'm not sure what that point was. But finally, Justin said, all right, all right, enough's enough. I'll try and find a better theme. And so he spent, I don't know, I think it was like an hour or two um, messing around with it, getting a theme that was a little cleaner, a little simpler. And then I was like, all right, that looks great, Justin. But this has, has like a list of pages on the right. Really, those should be like part of the header. And he's like, oh, man, that's really hard. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's really hard. I mean, that's exactly why I don't want to use WordPress or anything else, because, like, something so <laughs> stupid is, like, really hard. I'm like, that's retarded. I'm never using that, ever. Okay, you win. You win. Now, we're not allowed to talk about this anymore. Sorry, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to take this, because there's something I've been dying to ask, Derek. On, yeah. on thought stop, okay, I'm looking in my browser, HTTP colon forward slash forward slash thoughts.pro forward slash muckwork. Mm-hmm. Now, that page is very interesting to me, and I, I'd encourage our listeners to go and look at that. Just rewind and have a listen to what I just said. And Derek, if you could explain to me what's going on there, that'd be really, really cool. Remember, it's kind of at the beginning of this phone call, uh, you asked why I started kind of becoming public all of a sudden. I said the main reason was I wanted to share everything I learned just in case I'm hit by a bus tomorrow or whatever. I feel like it's almost my duty to share what I've learned. So... Same thing when I was thinking about hiring some programmers for the first time. Uh, I thought maybe it'd be a good experience for me to work with some outside programmers instead of trying to do everything myself. So then I was starting to describe something I wanted done. And I realized that, in fact, I knew all the deep details. In fact, I, I kind of think in database schemas. So as soon as I have an idea, even if I'm sitting in an airplane plane seat and I have a business idea, one of the first things I do is I just open up an SQL file by hand and I just start typing, you know, create table, persons, ID, <laughs> name, email. Like I, and I, I just think in schemas. It helps me organize my thoughts and just thinking about what kind of data will I need to keep and manage. And um, so, in fact, you know, with each of these programs I was thinking of outsourcing, I... I already had the database built. In fact, then it, if you're following the kind of MVC or REST type patterns, well, huh, well, then I already know all the functions I wanted and I already know the models and I already know the controllers. And, oh, in fact, just by having this little seed of an idea, I already know most of the details. I just haven't typed it all out into working code. So I thought, let me just write down what I know already. There's the common theme. If it's something I know, let me just share it, write it down instead of keeping it in my head or in the little scratchy, unorganized text files I had it on on my laptop. Uh, let me put it into something organized. And then I, the, the second half was realizing, well, as long as I've organized it and kind of sharing my thoughts clearly on this, why not just make it public? And that was an interesting thing that I haven't really written about yet, but that decision 
not to be secretive about my ideas because you really had to kind of think through rationally like okay what could really happen like i'm going to post my ideas and somebody's going to steal it and make a company based on my ideas and and run away and it's going to be a huge success then you know what good for them <laughs> it's with most of these thoughts i care more that somebody do it even if that somebody isn't me like it I would like for this thing called muckwork to exist. I would like for this thing called karma list to exist. Um, if nobody else makes it, I'll make it. But hey, if somebody else beats me to it, good. You know, one less thing. So on your thoughts.pro slash muckwork page, that you've got different sections. You've got schema, you've got site, and you've got REST API, and then you've got the database schema. Could, yeah. could, can you explain the schema section to us? Like what, how, <laughs> what that's about and how it's in paragraphs and why you've got stuff bold and... Ah, sure. Okay. Um, okay. Well, it's actually really it starts at the bottom. If you go to the very bottom of the page, there's just the very raw uh, database schema. Right. So that's really what came first. I think that's kind of how I think. And then I put it into Postgres. I play with it. I write some little tests. I'm like, yeah, this is this is the database that would keep this business idea organized. And this business I have in mind would would be best run with this kind of a database uh, as described. So then I thought, all right, instead of just handing somebody a raw SQL file, because not everybody thinks like that, let me just in plain English describe what's going on in that schema below uh, so that when somebody's, then they can look at the raw database schema and have a context for it. So it's really just, isn't that kind of almost like what a uh, a programmer often asks their clients to do, like saying, well, tell me what we're really looking at here. How does your company work? And so it says, okay, well, a client comes in and they submit a project. I guess it's also getting used to the lingo. Like these are the words I'm using for things. So a client come in, comes in and they submit a project, something that needs to be done. Um, but first they have to create a payment so their account has a positive balance so we can do the work. Now a manager is the person that takes a project and breaks it into a to-do list. I'm going to call these to-do lists tasks. So it's just kind of it's getting the lingo. The, the bold printed things I described there are the things that are uh, either match up to a – actually, I think in this case they do match up exactly to the database table names below. Um, but then that means they're often going to be – turned into models uh, if you use the the MVC style those are going to be models soon no matter whether you do it in Rails or PHP so it's just again just a way of organizing my thoughts in a way like I could show that to somebody and in a minute they could um, they could just read that and go okay alright I think I understand what you're doing here and then I created the section called site because that's uh, the public facing site is different than you know, what's going on behind the scenes. So from the site point of view, I want to say, how would it work when you come into muckwork.com? How's it going to work? Uh, it's going to go like this. Somebody walks into the front side. They do this. They click that, and this is what happens. Uh, and then same thing with below that. There's the REST API where I realized I already kind of knew the uh, the URLs. Um, oh, sorry about that. Um, I already knew the URLs uh, and the kind of the REST functionality that should happen. And yeah, I guess that's it. It was just sharing what was already in my head and trying to do it in an organized way where I could show it to somebody else that could help me make it. The, the reason why I bring it up is because I really like the way that it encapsulates an entire business, both technically and also the, the kind of business goals as well, in a really, really simple way, just a couple of paragraphs. And uh, yeah, I just think that's something interesting. That's why well, I, I, I think it's that's why it's so nice 
to have like your own website where then you can just put this stuff up on the web where so you can kind of a brain dump which i've noticed that derek does he all the he has a section called books where he kind of does a, a like an encapsulation summary of each of the books that he's read plus like a, a entire like book report <laughs> summary. Yep. you do this with all your ideas of course you write your blog posts so it's kind of a way to get your ideas out like you talk about the importance of sharing but i also i also wonder if just by making the effort to taking a little bit of extra time to put something up to create a web page and put an idea or project up there i'd be curious what else that has done for you other than just feeling like oh i don't have to think about it anymore because at least i have it down on paper and it's or on the web it's somewhere Oh yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's both. So it's the latter thing you just said about just having it out there, so that nice to know if I were to die, to die tomorrow, somebody could read my brilliant ideas and go make them happen posthumously. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the a few people have written about this. I think actually part of that inspiration came from Paul Graham, the Y Combinator guy. He writes these uh, wonderful essays, and I think somewhere where he was writing about writing, he said that the word essay came from an old French word that meant to explore, I think. And, and it, the whole idea is to, by writing, you explore an idea, um, and sometimes the way to know what you think about something is to write about it. And then you, by forcing yourself to organize your thoughts well it, it, uh, for writing, it just helps you organize your thoughts. So same thing with this thoughts.pro. I realized I had a whole bunch of scrambled ideas in my head about the new projects I wanted to do and my thoughts on them were scattered across lots of little text files and some of it I just never wrote down. I just had it in my head and forcing yourself to organize it all and post it um, is a great way to, I mean, it definitely helps you even make it happen. Now that it's so neatly organized, you can look at this and go, oh, wow, well, hell, I'm halfway done already now. I just got to type it out, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I, that, that's a uh, an essay of Paul Graham's that I really liked. It was, it was, I think it was something like how I write or why I write or something like that. And he, I think he talks about the word essay, which is like French, meaning to like to try. So he, and one thing he says in that article, if, if I'm remembering correctly, is that, you know, you, we, we get to school and when we go through school and they talk and they, when they teach kids – you know, they taught us how to write. It was like, well, you're supposed to know and you write down your five, you know, paragraphs, your intro and your body paragraphs and your conclusion. And it's like this very sort of predetermined, almost like a waterfall method of, mm-hmm. of writing um, an essay. And where he's like, well, he described his own process. He's like, look, I have a kernel of an idea and I'm experimenting. I'm trying to figure out what I think. And unfortunately, that's not how we're taught to write. So people look at writing essays come with, with almost with dread. Um, and you know, where his, it's sort of an experiment. It's like, I'm going to just try and figure out what I think by writing it down. And I'd be curious what you think about that in terms of your writing process as well as also, I, I, and also just to say that I think that's what you're trying to do here. You're just, you're trying to figure things out for yourself by putting them on the web. Yeah, I guess, let me think. Um, I guess sometimes with technical things, often it is already in your head, if you think about it, it's just you haven't really organized it yet, but all the answers are in your head. Sometimes it, you hit a little point in describing it where you realize like, oh, well, now that I look at that on paper, that isn't how I thought that would work. Um, but essay-wise, like the actual kind of like blog article type things, um, sometimes, honestly, the, the things that I post on my site are just 
they're kind of cocktail party stories that I've already been sharing with people. Or sometimes somebody tells me a story. Somebody shares uh, a little something that happened to her over the weekend with me. And sometimes we start with something that actually happened and we uh, get a moral out of it, like a shareable lesson based on a real story of what happened. And then other times you have uh, an idea that you want to share and you think of a uh, story that could help share that idea. Um, definitely there are two things, uh, since we're on the subject of writing articles and blogging, two, th- two things I feel like the biggest lessons I've learned from doing this over the past year um, for one, that it, uh, it really helps to have a story to share an idea. If you just give the raw idea, if you say, here's a concept that I think uh, people should believe or think, um, that uh, it just doesn't communicate as well as when you kind of have a story attached to it. But the biggest one, the biggest lesson I've learned over the past year is that the length of articles should be short enough so people can read it in under two minutes. Because otherwise, every time I've tried to do something longer than that, uh, people bookmark it. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, they'll come back to that. And then it doesn't get any comments and it doesn't really – the idea doesn't spread as far because it was too long for people to read while they're supposed to be doing something else. (laughs) So I think a lot of people read uh, articles online while they're at work or supposed to be doing something else or just stretching their legs for a second and they want a two-minute distraction. But they can't really take a 20-minute distraction. So I swear, as soon as I started – making my articles have what I call just one idea at a time. Meaning if you, if you have a bigger thought and you find that there are three parts to this idea, well, spread it apart. Make it three articles. Um, just have one idea at a time in something that can be read in under two minutes. And, man, that has just been the, the single most successful um, change I, I made to my site over the past year. As soon as I started writing in those lengths, I just found that they were getting spread so much further and faster. Right. There's, there's a couple of things I'd like to you know s- discuss about that, which is one is it almost seems like it's a happy medium between a tweet and an essay, right? So a tweet mm. can sometimes just be a nugget of an idea, and where these essays are, are you know these sometimes are four or five pages. You print it out and you're like, good grief, that's going to take me an hour to read. And you, sometimes it's like you just kind of you put it on your nightstand or bookmark it, and you just like oh, I'll get to it later. So I. I think that's kind of funny because I think that people are used to tweets, so that might even make people less interested in reading long form. Yeah. Because they're like, yeah, just just tell me what it is. (laughs) (laughs) But the question I want to ask you about it specifically is – you know, in terms of writing, I mean, I would would think it would be easier to post regularly if you know you just – all you really need to do is write down a couple paragraphs. You know, just at most one screenful. I mean, is it easier for you to get stuff up on a regular basis without this feeling like, oh, God, it's going to take me four hours of work and then the edit and stuff to get this four page behemoth online? Eh, it's a trick question, man. Um, you know, there's that old Mark Twain quote about something like, forgive the length of this letter. I didn't have time to shorten it. Right. And. You know, sometimes it takes four hours to write four paragraphs because you can sit there and blab and write much longer. But um, if you really want to edit it down to a powerful length that will spread, it can take a lot of time to to get to make it succinct. You know, um, the other the other reason it's unfortunately a trick question is there is a downside to this email thing that we talked about a while back. Is it because every time I post something on my site, I email automatically, you know, as soon as I post it, 
25,000 people get emailed saying, here's something I think you should read or that you've said that you wanted to read. And man, that is really almost too much pressure for me because are you it, <laughs> something you've, you're going to stand behind so much that as soon as you post it, 25,000 people are going to get emailed saying you should read this. Right. It's almost too much pressure for me. It's, it's something I almost regret about this email list. Um, but I think that's why I, I tend to use Twitter just for lighthearted little things. But it means that everything I post on my site, I really have to feel that that was worth bothering 25,000 people over. It's <laughs> well, Another thing I noticed there, going through um, Derek's blog, there's an awful lot of posts. And in actual fact, it kind of shows you that it's a little bit of the numbers game in the sense of those posts. Because if you think about the Derek's posts that have really kind of skyrocketed, it's, it's not that every post Derek writes skyrockets and gets to the front page of reddit and hacker news it's it's a kind of the selected view so this is something we've spoken about in the past is the the numbers game and basically doing a lot so i was just wondering what you thought about that and also how did you cultivate the habit of you know writing that much i read a brilliant thing once i, I don't remember what book this is from but changed the way i think about quantity is a true story that a an art teacher at a, uh, a teacher at an art school, I think it was a pottery class, decided to do an experiment with his students. I think he had, let's just say, 40 students. And he said, you 20 on this half will be judged. I want you to spend the entire month working on one piece. Make this one piece as best as you can make it. Uh, perfect it. Spend this whole month on one piece. You, two, uh, you 20, I'm going to judge you. You're going to be graded based on quantity. I'm literally just going to weigh the amount of pottery you create over the next month. And whoever has created the most pottery over the next month by weight will get a high grade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which just seems ridiculous, right? But um, what they found out is at the end of the month is that honestly the students who were being graded on quantity made some of the best pottery because they just kept doing it and just kept doing it and just kept doing it without this constant pressure to make it perfect they just did it for fun they got experimental let's do this let's make it upside down here's just a blob here's a thin thing uh they even had outside judges come in and look at selected pieces and try to figure out whether this was one that had been created with quality in mind or quantity in mind and in the end uh, even outside judges couldn't tell the difference um and in fact found the people doing it quantity had created some of the best stuff so to me that was a really powerful lesson so i i aim to write an article every single day and for a while i was holding myself to that um if you look at the date stamps on my uh post you see i I took the last two months and did nothing uh my wife and i were traveling around the world and i just wasn't in a writing mood so (laughs) i didn't but i've actually been saving up some ideas and i'm going to start posting a lot soon but ideally i mean you look at somebody like seth godin he writes something really short every day his posts are often just you know sometimes five sentences um but an interesting tidbit of an idea and when i met with seth godin i asked him uh, it's one of my first questions for him is how do you do it how do you write something what did I say? I said something like, how do you post an article every day? And he said, easy. I just have to force myself to not post 10 articles a day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so from his point of view, he just wishes that he could just 
all day just share every thought he's had, everything he, interesting he's come across, every bit of advice that somebody's asked him. He just wants to post it all, but he forces himself to only put one a day up there, so which is a, a very different mindset. But I think it just means that whatever you're doing in life, it's just putting aside a little time, a little quiet time with the door closed to you know, make it a priority to sit and share your thoughts. Yeah, because as, as much as, as, as uh, Justin and I have argued about you know what I should do about my blog. I have yet to write a single <laughs> post. It's <laughs> completely Brilliant. theoretical. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, and part of the reason is, is I, is I, is I, you know, you think, well, what am I going to write? You know, or how, you know, I, I keep thinking of these big long things I need to write. But I, I, I think I'm going to look at your model, which makes more sense, which is keep it short, which you can do. You can fit into your day. Yeah, um, one idea at a time. That, that's one idea. just post only one idea at a time. If you find out it's getting anything beyond one idea, then break it up into a separate article. Right. And I, I like the idea of once a day because, right, if you do it once a day, it forces you to keep it short, right? Yeah. If you say, well, what I'm going to do, my schedule is I'm going to try and do one on Friday and I'm going to try and do one on Tuesday or something, right? Those are my two days. Well, then Friday comes, well, I'll do it on Saturday. We'll do it on Sunday. Well, and, and then you can think, well, if it's, if it's only twice a week, I can make them longer and more thoughtful and spend more time on it. But then, of course, it just life, you know, intrudes and you can't get it out. So if you're doing it once a day like you're doing it, and I think you can at least say, well, if I have to do it every day, I mean, I, I can only spend, you know, half hour on this thing or whatever. You know what I think also helps is you have to feel that it's important. Um, that at first I, I re- really only thought it was important because there were things that I had been telling friends and I had never put into writing. So it was like, like my first 20 or 30 or 40 blog posts were just things that I had been talking about for years and never actually written down. I mean, even some deep personal things. You know, I had this this fascinating story of what happened the day my grandfather died. Um, and I told some friends, and every time I told people, they just, they loved that story, but I realized I had never written it down. I'd never even told my mom, you know? So, so I finally just put aside the, an hour or two to, to write it down. Uh, and that meant a lot to people. But then what happened is, after a few months of doing this, I found out I was getting... Uh, you know, if I do a little vanity search on Twitter, all these little things I had posted were getting so spread around the world and people were loving them. And, and again, I have no real business reason for doing this. I mean, I, I haven't started my new company yet. I mean, maybe it won't make any business difference in the end, but it felt better. So all of a sudden I realized that I guess this is an important thing for me to do and it's worth even a couple hours a day of my time. It's worth me just waking up early and, and treating it seriously. The way that like, if you decided you really wanted to get better at uh, Italian or you really wanted to get better at cello and it mattered to you, um, you'd put aside time to do it. So, I well, I think there's like probably something that's part of the uh, human psyche uh, uh, that wants to share. You know, I think we we grew up in small tribes around fire. You know, the the campfire, and I imagine there's probably a lot of sharing. And I think in in our lives, maybe the way they've evolved, we do less of the sharing, and the and the web is giving at least some of us an opportunity to do it in a little different way. And <laughs> it sounds like what you're doing yeah. is you're sharing, but you're also sharing. It's not just ideas like here's a great way to you know build a business or something. You're you're telling stories, which is the which is definitely the uh, the way that humans have imparted knowledge is through story over the years, and it's only through probably the last couple hundred years that we've you know evolved towards more of a formal form that that leaves the story behind. But I like the story format much better because it's much more digestible. Yeah, it, it spreads faster. It's it's people can relate to it more if you give it a give it a face and a name and something they can relate to instead of just giving a high level concept. You know. So with that, I was wondering if we we could we could 
maybe hear a few of your stories. I mean, you've written them. It'd be fun to, to talk about them a little bit. And would you be up for telling us a few of your stories? Sure, if you don't mind, can you can you prompt me instead of leaving? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, go. Here? He's, he's written a thousand. Let's try and whittle it down to, <laughs> no, you know, I'm one just, or two. Just, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, I, there's a couple that I really like that I, I think it, uh, I would love to hear actually you dis- describe them. Is One is the there is no speed limit. Um, uh, and that's one of my favorites. I mean, there's a bunch to pick from, but uh, would you mind just telling us that story? Yeah, that was that was huge. It was one of the biggest turning points in my whole life. Um, when I was in high school, I was kind of a fuck up. I just wanted to be a guitarist. That's all I cared about in the world. I just wanted to be a musician. I got straight D's through high school uh, because I just didn't care. I spent all my time just playing music. And I decided I wanted to go to Berklee College of Music. Uh, I just wanted to be a full-time musician. So just a couple months before I was set to go, I saw an ad in the local uh, newspaper classified section saying uh, music typesetting. I thought, huh, if I'm going to be off at music school, they're going to be making us handwrite all these, you know, treble clef 16th notes with the little bars that connect them and all those dots and lines. That's going to be a pain in the ass. There's got to be some kind of like a music typewriter so I don't have to do all that. So I called this guy up and said, hey, I've got a question for you. And I asked about a music typewriter and he said, well, why do you want to know? I said, because I'm going to Berklee College of Music. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm 17 years old, right? So <laughs> well, I still had the guitar in my lap with a phone. I just said, I'm going off to Berklee College of Music, and I don't want to handwrite all this stuff. And and <laughs> the, the guy is great. He's kind of this uh, black guy with, like, this deep voice and this kind of kind of uh, demeanor that's a little bit like bit like Denzel Washington when he's being <laughs> kind of super cool. And so just imagine that kind of voice. And he's going, huh, Berkeley College of Music, huh? What do you want to go to Berkeley College of Music for? <laughs> and I said, well, I want to be a great songwriter. And he goes, you know, uh, $25,000 in four years is a lot of time spent, uh, a lot of time and money to learn how to write a verse and chorus. <laughs> and I said, well, but, you know, I, I really want to, that's what I want to do. And he said, well, look, I used to teach at Berkeley School of Music a few years ago. I attended and then I taught there. And he said, why don't you come by my studio at 9 a.m. tomorrow? Let me just show you a few things I think you should know before you go. I said, okay, great. And I got his address and that was that. And um, showed up at his studio at 9 a.m. He told the story, by the way. Uh, We're still friends to this day. He told the story much like uh, 15 years later, I heard him tell the story saying that he never expected me to show up. Apparently, kind of kids would come to him all the time saying they wanted to be famous, they wanted to be successful. And he would always say, show up at my studio at 9 a.m. sharp and nobody ever would. So just the fact that I, I was the one that actually showed up at his studio at 9 a.m. sharp <laughs> impressed him. So here's what's fascinating. And you can relate this to, even if you're not a musician, you can relate this to any technique, uh, whether it's, you know, whatever, programming or kung fu, <laughs> is that he kind of, he sat me down and he said, it's just kind of raising the bar of, of expectations and learning speed. He sat me down at the piano. He said, okay. We're going to learn music theory because it's one of the first things you need to know at Berkeley is really understand 
understanding jazz harmony. So all of a sudden, the pace just increased. He said, okay, what's a major scale? And I went, what do you mean? He said, play me a major scale. I went, okay, da 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 He said, okay, so if you were to build it, you know what a triad is? I said, yeah, it's a one, three, five. He said, okay, if you were to build a triad off the diatonic, the first note of the, of the scale, how does it go? I said, uh, C, E, G. He said, okay, that's called the one chord. He said, if you were to build a triad off of the third note of the scale, how does it go? I said, uh, E, G, B. He said, right. Guess what that's called? I said, the three? He said, right. What kind of chord is the three? Um, what do you mean? Major, minor? What is it? I said, it's minor. He said, okay. So it's called three minor. So now let's get going. What is the six? Uh, it's A. What's the triad built off of it? A, C, E. What kind of chord is it? Uh, minor. Okay. Now if I called, I said you were to add a seventh on top of that, what do you think it would be? I said, one, three, five, seven. It would be the, the, the next triad up. He said, okay, that's called a seven chord. Now when you play it on an A, what it is it? It's a minor seven. If you were to go to the B, what is it? I don't, it's like got a flat three and I don't know what it is. He said, that's called a flat five. He said, okay. So what's the, give me the four chord in in D major. I went, uh, G. Okay, good. And he just, our lesson went at this pace for about three hours. Pretty soon he's showing me this. He's pulling up Charlie Parker things. He's saying, okay, now you've got a tritone. A tritone sounds dissonant. You know what dissonant is, right? I said, yeah. He said, okay, dissonant wants to resolve. Where do you get a tritone if you uh, build a seventh chord off of this? Okay, I, okay, it's on the five. Where else can you get a tritone? I don't know. Come on, think. Where else can you get a tritone? Uh, the, the flat two chord. That's right. Okay, so a flat two is a substitute for the five. You got that? Now give me a flat two substitute on the A flat chord. Um, um, come on, you can do it. Give me a flat two substitute. Okay, it's, it's a so we went at that pace for a few hours and what I found out wow. is wow was your head about to explode at that point yeah but it was amazing because I was I was up for it you know I mean I'm 17 I wanted to learn this stuff and so he sent me home with this uh, homework to basically do the same he said okay analyze five different songs write out the chord thing, uh, the chord labels for five different songs analyze the structures of five songs in this book and come back to me Wednesday at 9am so what happened is in only Three of those lessons, I found out later when I went off to Berkeley School of Music, he taught me four years or four semesters of Berkeley College of Music Harmony in only three lessons. And in the next two lessons, he taught me two years of big band arranging classes in two lessons. And it was just this idea that, you know, the, the world kind of, the world is structured at a pace that is the norm, and if you stick at the, the pace that the world hands you, uh, as he said, the, the standard pace is for chumps. You can do better than that, so never accept the standard pace that the world gives you. And he said, I think you can graduate uh, Berkeley College of Music. It's a four-year program. I think you can graduate in two years. There's no need to go at the standard pace. And, and I did. So on my first day of Berkeley where I took the entrance exams, I tested out of, you know, seven semesters of stuff, of requirements that he had taught me in a few lessons. And then he just kind of got me into that mindset where I, ever since then, I just approached life thinking that the, the standard stuff that people tell you is the way things should be done. I see that as the standard paces for chumps. I see. You know, there's always a, if you're a bright person at all, you can always do better than that. You can go faster than that. If you work hard, if you focus, you can learn faster than everybody says you, it takes to learn things. And yeah, it's just that, that single encounter, uh, meeting this guy, uh, his name's Kimo Williams in Chicago. And uh, yeah, that totally changed my life and how I've approached it since. It's interesting because it's very opposite to the laid back demeanor that you have. If you <laughs> well, um, 
Yeah. <laughs> I can, you know, there, there are things I can be very intense about, but, um, well, you're, you seem to be intense about things that you have passion for, right? I mean, there's one thing of being laid back, something about having passion. So you can be laid back and have passion for something at the same time. Doesn't mean you're like lazy, right? <laughs> right, but there are lazy people that are neurotic, you know? I, yeah. There's some people that uh, seem laid back, but they freak the fuck out if something's out of place in their kitchen. So, you know, it's all about deciding right. what to freak out about, you know? Well, you know, one reason that, that, that story in particular resonated with me is I had a, a teacher in high school who I was directed to um, because I, I was doing like these independent studies in computer science and the computer science coordinator quickly got to the point where she's like, look, I can't answer any more your questions. You need to go talk to Steve Segur. And I'm like, well, he's the basketball coach. She's like, yeah, well, he, he knows all this computer math stuff. I'm like, really? <laughs> so I went to him and I started talking to him about, I was trying to do like this like programming and electronics. He's like, well, you need to learn the computer language uh, fourth. And he's like, you know what? You should probably just go ahead and teach yourself calculus. I was like, what? I was like 14, you know, <laughs> what is he talking about? I'm in geometry. I was, a, I was a year ahead math as far as anybody was, but I was in geometry, right? I mean, what, I mean, this guy's insane. And he's like, no, no. He's like, if you can learn a year of math in two months, no problem. He's like, so why don't you just go ahead and start teaching yourself calculus? <laughs> like, wow. You know, and, and he, it was the same kind of thing happened with me in that situation, right? I mean, he, I, I was really lucky to have a mentor who who saw my enthusiasm and was willing to direct it if I was up for putting in the energy, which is yeah. what happened with you. And, you know, not everybody's that lucky, but you, you and I both were in, in our own cases. But isn't it cool about the, the internet in general? You know, I'm, I'm 40 now. I love the fact that I can remember that a lot of my life was pre-internet. I love that because mm -hmm. you, can, you can really almost appreciate it more when you remember how things were without it. So how cool to just... Everybody can go at their own pace now. If somebody really wants to dive in and learn something, it, it used to be that you'd have to like, go down to the public library and try to find books about a subject you wanted to know more about. Now it's just amazing that there's just no, there's no limit to how far you want to dive down in your knowledge on something. My, I guess my only fear is that you, it's easier now than ever to dive into knowledge on something. I fear that it might be harder for people to focus like the kind of thing like practicing an instrument where the way you get better is by turning off your computer mm -hmm. and getting your fingers on a fretboard and doing your scales and arpeggios and things like that i i, I wonder if you know we're going to see a, a longer shift in, uh, where kind of practiced techniques that require focus are going to, to dwindle a bit i don't know we'll see do you still play um with with uh, with bands and professionally in any way no not at all i guess i, I wasn't that direct when you kind of asked something about that earlier but yeah when when i started cd baby in whatever that was 1997 98 um something just switched in my head and honestly i kind of dismantled my recording studio and haven't even missed it since uh, just something switched so that this is my creative outlet now I do know that feeling. Because <laughs> well, exactly I've asked you that. Energy. I've asked you that, Justin. And yeah. you, you, do you still play music? And you, you don't seem to be that. Interested, I think the thing it? about it is, is I don't know if this is true for um, Derek, but for me, it it was so concentrated and focused, and and really distilled the experience of like five years hardcore musicianship. <laughs> but it's like you really get it out of your system, you know. Like you just yeah. you just go you just do so much of it and. That experience of like lugging around the gear and uh, doing the gigs <laughs> <laughs> and basically put you know putting your soul on the line in front of everyone every night it it's you know it, it it takes a special kind of person to spend a life doing that I think I think don't we all kind of have a tendency sometimes to 
to focus on one thing at a time or one um and our brain gets fascinated with something all of a sudden it's it becomes a thing that you dream about at night so yeah it's like you know you and i for for years probably dreaming in musical ideas at night i mean i would daydream about bass lines and drum parts and daydream lyrics and melody ideas and these days i i daydream and and um you know this kind of stuff you see on my site that i'm writing about and what's fascinating is just a few months ago i started really diving in deep to learning mandarin and uh in a couple weeks my wife and i are going off to china for two months to study mandarin full-time and i'm so into it i just find it's like i just do it for hours a day and i'm just (laughs) fascinated with the language it is such a cool language and i'm just absolutely loving it so it's it's kind of fun letting myself just dive down that rabbit hole. It's a blast. How is it learning a, a new language at 40, right? Because you always hear that it's extremely difficult past a certain age to pick up a new language that if you, you know, obviously if you learn it from, you know, when you're just learning to speak, then it's very easy. And then it gets progressively harder through, you know, adolescence, then adulthood, it's almost impossible to become fluent in another language. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> a few thoughts. I mean, for one, I feel like I'll I'll have more authority to speak about it if I actually become fluent in the language (laughs) because until then it's just something I'm enjoying playing with but everybody who says that stuff may be right and I may suck and I may never learn the language and I may may find it really difficult but as of now my hunch is that it's kind of again that's kind of like the norm you know the standard paces for chumps kind of idea where most people who have normal lives where they have lots of responsibilities and and at the age of 40 their brain is scattered many directions and they have kids and they have jobs then yeah it may be harder to learn a language than when you were seven and your whole life could be you you didn't have a lot of responsibilities (laughs) so it could just be something as simple as that uh i don't believe that argument where people say that our our brains just can't handle it um in some ways i think i find it easier to learn a language now than i would at seven because i'm able to kind of make some rational links with it too i mean because i i already understand what grammar is and how english is put together from a higher level point of view it actually helps become a shortcut to learning Chinese and and understanding, oh, okay, in the Chinese way, point of view, they always, the sentence structure, da-da-da-da-da, you know what I mean? It's like, sure. I can think of it in a way I wouldn't have been able to think about it at seven. It, I find it helps me. Um, yeah. You know, a, 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 an analogy um, that I think I'd, I'd like to bring up is that, you, you, this is completely far afield, but it, I think you'll, it'll apply, which is that... When you hear about body mass index, you, you heard of that term when people are like yeah. how how over whether you're obese or not, and it basically was basically is like how tall you are and what's your weight, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe your age or something factors in a little bit, but basically they say, well, statistically it's very accurate. If you look at statistics, it's like well, if your body mass is X, you know you're obese, or your body mass is X, you're within the normal range. You should that's healthy. But if you look at somebody who lifts weights, like a you know a football player or a bodybuilder, anybody, they're going to have a very high body mass index. But on an individual basis, they're going to be extremely. Um, have extremely low body fat percentage. In fact, mm-hmm. they can sometimes be dangerously low body fat percentage where the doctors may be like, listen, you need to have a little more fat here. You're like at 3%. And gymnasts and some Olympic athletes get to that level where they need to eat more. And so it's just the interest where, in statistically speaking, when you're looking at a population, you're going to say, this is true. Body mass index is a good metric. You know, but on a very an individual basis, it can be very, very wrong. So if you say, well, on a statistics ba- statistical basis, it's you know most people, it's it's pretty much learning a language is very difficult. So you might as well not really consider the possibility <laughs> of becoming fluent. But individual basis, it might not have anything to do with anything. If you have somebody who really, really wants to learn, is going to dedicate themselves to it. It's just a different. 
thing. Yeah, you're right. It's a dedication. How how important is this to you? I mean, same thing with like you talked about writing articles and and are you getting it done? Well, how important is it to you? Um, if it's crucial, you'll do it. Um, well, shit. I mean, same with all learning. I mean, learning computer programming. Uh, I didn't learn it until I had to. Like, if I would have taken a class in school about programming, I probably would have just done it. But because it wasn't necessary for my life, I would have just done it for class. But, man, what, what a necessity. Such a great teacher. When uh, CD Baby was growing, uh, things where I was doing everything manually, you know, every incoming order was just doing nothing but sending me an email. And then I would cut and paste all of the information into a form to print out every order and and save it in my little FileMaker Pro database on my computer. And so I had all of the uh, motivation in the world to to find out how to automate these processes. And I had to learn programming immediately because I was spending hours a day doing manual things that I knew a computer could do without me. I just had to figure out how to do it. So, you know, I just had all the motivation in the world uh, Necessity is the best teacher. So um, that's kind of, I'm really going to, it'll be interesting going into China for two months and, and just being there in an environment where you have to learn. Hey, uh, Jason, um, we've just let you know we've been going uh, just up to an hour 30. Okay. So I think we should think about wrapping up soon. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I just have maybe one or two quick questions that I think would be interesting to hear the answers to, which is one is that, um, you know, Derek, you spent a lot of your time being nomadic. I think you said you were working from CD Baby Remote for six years or something like that, and you mm-hmm. spent a lot of time traveling around. And I'd be curious what you think about living the nomadic lifestyle because you, I think it, you've you've written written about how you you've tried to sell most of your possessions, and I think you even gave away a lot of your wealth that you earned <laughs> from selling of CD Baby. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's all part of that minimalist thing. It's it's realizing what you don't need. I think a lot of people kind of are kind of blindly driven to acquire stuff. They they kind of have this feeling that more stuff equals more happiness. Ooh, new iPhone, I need it. Ooh, new <laughs> gadget, new iPad, I need it. Right. And I think it really helped that I felt it personally that the gadgets were not making me happy but then i think it really helped when i read a couple books uh most notably one called stumbling on happiness uh by a harvard psychology professor that's been studying happiness for years and found out that people are very bad at predicting what will make them happy for the same reason that we're bad at remembering what made us happy years ago because it all just kind of fades into the distance that's the same reason why we're bad at predicting what will make us happy in the future. So we, we think that, for example, having a bigger home will make us happy. Uh, but to get a bigger home, you usually have to go out to a uh, more rural area that's farther away from your work. So it means you have an hour commute. But hey, I don't mind an hour commute. It's only an hour. I'd much rather have a bigger home. But then if you find out, if you actually talk to people that are in those situations, say with a bigger home or sitting in traffic every day commuting, you find out that, in fact, having a bigger home has not made people happier, but having a longer commute has absolutely made them unhappy. And this is across thousands of people interviewed. So using other people's experiences, you can find out that you would be happier living closer to where you work and having a smaller home. Uh, It's just a fact. Or maybe it's like the body mass index thing you said, where at least it applies to almost everybody. 
Right. Um, so I just started learning these ideas about, you know, having stuff. And I just found out that I was personally happier. I was personally at my happiest when everything I had was just in one little backpack and I was self-sufficient and I had my little backpack with me in India or Iceland or uh, Brazil. And there I was with everything I needed in my little backpack. And, and, uh, it just made me so happy just living like that. And it was so nice to not have a bunch of stuff that I had to take care of. And, um, I just found that that's when I was at my happiest. So I started organizing a life around that. Well, Justin, see, you know, listening to Derek's stories and how he's described his life, it's like he's he's nomadic. He's given away most of his possessions. He um, he's moving towards of, ascension. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he talks a lot about how he's <laughs> he's just trying to help people, and uh, and I'm like, he's like a modern day version of uh, David Carradine's character. Yeah, he's, from he's Kung the Kung Fu, Fu guy. He's Kung Fu. <laughs> he's Kane from Kung Fu. And so my question to you, my question for you is. What martial art do you train in, and whose ass have you had to kick lately? I'll be reluctant. Because <laughs> I know well, not, Kane isn't looking to kick anyone's ass, but he just, in, in meeting out justice, he's, he sort of pulled into having to lay it down sometimes. So. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little. Now that we're an hour and a half into this conversation, we'll see how, how many people actually listen this far. Uh, a little secret I haven't told anybody outside of uh, some family yet is that, um, so, you know, I, you do know I got, got married like six months ago, and my wife yeah. and I started traveling the world kind of with the goal of a little bit scratching a travel itch and going to places we'd always wanted to go, but also um, to pick a new country to call home. And it was very much we were sussing out all these different countries for like, is this a place we'd really like to live and stay and, you know, have a kid and stay for a while, get residency, get citizenship, all that kind of stuff. So we checked out a bunch of places, and um, when we hit Singapore – uh, we both just felt it like, oh, hell yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> love it. We both just love Singapore. So uh, at the end of the year, I'm moving to Singapore and buying a house and going to be a little less nomadic for a while. Wow. Well, and, you know, the other thing you also have in common with Kane is you also have a, a shaved head, right? Completely bald. <laughs> yeah, you, even look, you even look a little like David Carradine. <laughs> I, I think that uh, he's actually like, the, he's almost like the modern day Chuck Norris, and we're, we're going to be able to get Chuck Norris quotes about him. <laughs> oh, yeah, we should start the Derek Sivers version. Right? I like that. That would probably work. When Derek Sivers gets into the sea, the sea gets Derek Sivers. Derek <laughs> right. doesn't get wet. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> no, like, well, I'd like to ask, you know, dig into just that one, one uh, fact we mentioned is that you gave away a good portion of your, your net worth, your wealth. I mean, that's a, uh, it's one thing to say to do that. It's one thing to talk about doing that when you're, when you're older and retired and you have a fortune and you start giving it away, but you're young and um, giving away your fortune at this point um, is a drastic it's a dramatic thing to do it's an incredibly generous thing to do but i'm just curious what started that thought process in particular it, the same thing i just said it was on, honestly books like stumbling on happiness and that one in specifically um a book a book called paradox of choice by barry schwartz same thing kind of a psychology professor who's done a lot of studies on what makes us happy and what makes us unhappy and found out that having too much choice um makes us unhappy and sometimes by limiting our options and just deciding in advance especially based on the experiences of others deciding in advance to limit our options can make us much happier and it was at the time that i i had this kind of eight months of freak out in between well not freak out but eight months of some mental anguish (laughs) angst 
when I decided I was going to sell CD Baby, when I had an agreed upon price of $22 million, and before this, you know, I had eight months before the sale was done. So I had eight months to kind of say, oh, shit, 22 million. What the hell do you even do with 22 million? Like, I don't, you couldn't even pay me to drive a Ferrari. I don't want an expensive car. You couldn't pay me to live in a seven bedroom house. I don't want some big, stupid house to take care of. I don't even want anything. Like, I just, I have my laptop. I love my laptop. <laughs> uh, I have a couple things that I need. I like my Kindle. Um, I have a good phone. All right. I'm, I'm good. You know, like, I don't want anything else. And then I realized that. Uh, this kind of intentional limitation. So to be fair, I mean, I didn't give away all the money. Uh, I set it up into a, a structure called a charitable remainder unit trust, which the key point is that it pays me out 5% of its value each year for life. So mm-hmm. I did already give it all away into this charitable trust, but then the trust gets to uh, you know, invest it into just basically passive mutual funds and things like that. I can't invest it into any active... Um, investments. I can't invest into the business of anybody I know or anything like that. So it just kind of gets to slowly grow passively in mutual funds and then pay me out 5% a year, which is honestly still more than enough. But 5% was the lowest that the law lets you set it to. I would have preferred 1%, but you know, 5% is fine. Um, so that's still enough. So it's really more of like, it's like I didn't want access to $22 million, I feared that I would do something stupid, <laughs> that I would someday, you know, get in a bad mood and buy a mansion or something. So um, I didn't even want the ability to do that. I, I instead just realized I would be happier if I just knew that I was set for life, like I would have a steady stream of income for life, so I could mm-hmm. just focus on other things. Um, well, it's... It- Uh, yeah, that I think that would I think that would go over great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd really change everybody's mind. I think there, if the Republicans would turn around and send a uh, you know a list of how much food people are allowed to consume to the Democrats, nice. that that would go over about equally well. You know, um, yeah, because it, 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 it's just about to make that analogy. It's almost like you know we can eat as much food as we want, but when you eat too much food, not only do you become overweight and and have you know uh, physical you have health problems but it makes you f- not feel so good and it's yeah. like if you can if you can have the willpower to just say look i'm only going to consume the calories that i need and i'll be that and that'll keep give me the most energy and i'll sleep the best and i'll feel better and i won't become overweight and I, you know all those sorts of things but if we eat as much as we can because we can because we have all that food in our in our uh, refrigerator then you got a problem so it's almost like that with wealth right it's like you don't need to spend a million dollars a year to be happy you don't need to spend a hundred thousand dollars a year to be happy but as you said and and like one thing you're pointing out is oftentimes spending huge sums of money might actually have the opposite result not only does it not make you happier it might actively make you unhappy yeah like i actually feel bad for people that are constantly always feel the need to to pounce on every new thing that Apple puts out. They're just like, oh my god, new thing, I need it! And I, I kind of feel bad. You, you sense this kind of unhappiness or this sense of, uh, like, I'm incomplete without this new thing. like, Or just this sad belief that they're going to somehow be happier with this new thing. Uh, even, check this out, sometimes it can even go towards experiences. Um, I was thinking of going to India uh, at one point, just I wanted to know it better and 
so I was, I was actually thinking of moving there for a while, and I was talking to a friend of mine um, that I, is pretty wise. Her name's Tina Sue, and she's quite smart. And I was talking to her, saying, um, you know, I can think of all these reasons why I should go to India. Can you think of any reason why I shouldn't? And she went, hmm. She thought for a second, and she said, yeah. She said, don't go if you think it's going to make you happy. I was like, ooh, that's brilliant. Like, anytime you think something is going to make you happy, <laughs> beware. Because, you know, you, you can't rely on external things to make you happy. So if you think that I, new iPhone is going to make you happy, beware, you know. It kind of reminds me of the old Buckaroo Banzai saying, is no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah. You can't run away from yourself. And, yeah. And... Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, well, Justin, I don't, I don't know if you have any more questions. Just but one, I, I just got one more. Okay. W- would you be as satisfied as you are now if you hadn't built CD Baby and had the success of CD Baby? Would you still be in exactly the same place? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a happy person by nature, but um, I'll tell you a real crass punchline. Uh, there was this young entrepreneur... Um, it kind of looks up to me. We're kind of friends, but she also really kind of blatantly tells me, I wish I had your life. And at one point I had gone through this really hard time, like really bad breakup. And I just stayed cheerful throughout it. And, and she said, um, God, how do you do it? How do you always stay so positive and cheerful? I thought for a second, I said, well, first you get a million dollars. It's like, come on, let's be honest. It's awesome. I mean, I love the fact that it's like, it, I think it does absolutely change your life when you don't have to stress about money. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to be an idiot who's going to go out and do stupid things like buying mansions and stupid Ferraris when a you know, little Toyota's fine. You, know? you don't want to be stupid, but up to a certain point, it absolutely changes the quality of your life when you're not having to stress out and worry about money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that said... Everybody has their little kind of their default point. Like some people are just happier people by nature. So I've always, you know, personality-wise, this is just I've always been this way. You know, I've always been a little ambitious go-getter, always very excitable, always very happy. Um, that would have been the same. But damn, it's it's certainly nice to not have to stress about money. Well, you're being, you know, it's not that you're being crass. It's just absolutely honest, and and it's actually based on based on the studies that I've read on. Uh, on uh, happiness, which is there are two things. Which is one is that people um, there's a there's actually a happiness threshold around a million dollars. Actually, talk about there's a significant mm. threshold that when people hit around a million dollars, there's a there's a consistently higher average level of happiness when there's net worth is that. Which is funny that you mentioned that number. The second is that people have a natural sort of uh, happiness um, baseline. So they might yeah. win the lottery or get married or have a kid or sell their company or do whatever it is. But, and they might have you f- be, feel euphoric for a while, but they ultimately return to that, that baseline level. But that baseline can be a little higher based on certain circumstances like, like health and friends and things like that. So it's interesting because what you're saying, while it's just honest and it's from your experience, it's also it's in accordance with – you know, the research on the topic as well. You know, it's funny. I, I heard that same study, but I heard it was something like $35,000. Like if you've, as yeah. long as you've reached a basic level that in, you know, most, uh, most places on earth, 
get you all the basic needs so you have a nice roof over your head, you're all set, you're not in panic mode. I heard that's where the happiness kind of levels out. I, um, I, I read that one recently. That popped up on Hacker News within a few weeks ago. I think, few, that, okay. well, I think the discrepancy here is it's uh, $35,000 for men and a million dollars for women. Uh. <laughs> Fair enough, Justin. I like that. All, right, good uh, all the emails go to Justin at... <laughs> yeah. um, well, Derek, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on. And, I, I, you know, I think, Justin, could, we could keep you on for another couple hours just asking you all kind of uh, about your stories. But maybe what we could do is have you on at some point, you know, on down the road and actually dig a little deeper into some of your stories if you'd, uh, if you'd be willing to come on. Because I know there's a lot of interesting stuff we could talk about. Well, let's do this again next year. I will have uh, spent a couple months in China. I will be living in Singapore. And I will have written a whole bunch of new stuff and we'll think of some other i really enjoyed your uh your questions and conversations so maybe we'll have all kinds of new fun stuff to talk about next year thanks Derek. It's, it has been great to have you on the show yeah it's been great because i'm just looking at this list of stories that i wanted to ask you about and i'm like man i didn't get to get to any of these things so we'll have them queued up for next year and all right uh, but so well Derek, thanks so much it's it's been a real pleasure and wish you the uh, best of luck in singapore and uh, I guess that's a wrap. We're out. Well, thanks, Justin. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much, Derek. Have a great day. Thanks again. 